All right, welcome everybody. Spiritual psychotherapy episode eleven. So uh, we'll start off with some ideas from the Tao Te Ching. This is actually the opening of the Tao Te Ching, and I said it'll be nice just to um, let these words land on you, however they land. And uh, you know, I think when you know, I was listening to these words in Costa Rica, I was in the middle of uh, a beautiful resort overlooking a, an a enormous ocean. I'm sitting in the trees and I'm listening to these words read by Wayne Dyer on uh, YouTube. I highly recommend that rendition of the Dao De Ching with beautiful uh, music in the background and really just very, you know, it, it kind of goes right into the heart. So allow these words to land on you. Let me know if you have any any questions or comments about them. But I think it's just super interesting. So take a listen. The Dao that can be told is not the eternal Dao. The name that can, that can be named is not the eternal name. So immediately, we're going to notice already a lot of connections between this and the Zohar, this ineffability, the lack of ability to speak it out, to even name that which is the source of everything, that which is the, breathes the fire into the equations as uh, Richard Dawkins, not, sorry, not Richard Dawkins, um, Stephen Hawking would say. Um, and you know, the, the, it's this quality of ineffability, or I can't speak it out that almost adds a magic to whatever it is that we're speaking about. Um, the Tao is both named and nameless as nameless. It is the origin of all things as named it is the mother of 10,000 things. So immediately already I'm hearing, you know, echoes to, uh, the Sifirot, right? The Sifirot we talk about Bina as being the mother of everything the mother of all the rest of the Sifirot. That's exactly what we're reading about here. Being both named and nameless, it's this paradoxical nature to the Tao, that it's something that, on the one hand, you could say things about it, but on the, on the other hand, you can't say anything about it. And if it were one or the other, it wouldn't be the Tao. That's kind of how it is in, in the world. And in life, you're, you're going to encounter this quality of elusiveness of that deepest sense of the world. It just is always... On the tip of your tongue, it's always one word away, but you can't quite capture it. Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one sees only the manifestations. And the mystery itself is the doorway to all understanding. So there's something about this, this quality that it's not desiring anything. It doesn't want to be more than itself. It's not seeking anything else out. Um, it's this mysteriousness, it's a doorway uh, to all understanding. Uh, this the, the, the mystery itself is that doorway. Under heaven, all can see beauty as beauty, only because there is ugliness. All can know good as good, only because there is evil. Right. So this is now saying we only know one thing because of its opposite. We're only aware of beauty because of ugliness. We're only aware of good because of evil. So part of this understanding is in order to get back to that oneness, if you're able to tap into the non-dual plane, if you're able to tap into that which is not relying on its opposite in a way, then you start to get a flavor of the unity of all things. It's almost like inside and outside go together. What is it that goes together? What is it that you get when you have the opposites in a, in the same picture at once, 
meaning you stop looking at the crest of the wave and the trough of the wave separately. And you start taking a bigger view and you say, whoa, I see that the crest and the trough are really part of the same thing. These are the best way that the best way that it could really be put into words. Being and non-being produce each other. The difficult is born and the easy long is defined by short, the high by the low. Before and after go along with each other. All right, continuing that same sentiment. So the sage lives openly with apparent duality and paradoxical unity. The sage can act without effort and teach without words, nurturing things without possessing them. He works, but not for rewards. He competes, but not for results. So a person who is in tune and in touch with all of this reality and is in touch with uh, the fact that in reality, there is no duality. It's all oneness. This type of a person is acting without effort. He doesn't have a desire to change the way that things are. He's able to just be with what is and nurture it without trying to claim ownership over it because he doesn't see himself as separate of it from it, right? He just sees himself as continuous with everything. He works, but not for rewards, right? He's just doing the work out of enjoyment of the work itself. And that reminds us a lot of the idea of limud Torah lishma, right? Learning Torah for its own sake, competing not for results. You know, it's, it's, I didn't, maybe the word compete is not even the right word, but just be playing this game that we play. So you and I, in, in this day and age, we can find a way to get into the groove of life and into the groove of work without trying to always get a result out of it. And that might sound ironic. It might sound weird. Like, what do you mean? Why would I work for not for the result? And the answer is if work is more like play. If you genuinely are enjoying what you're doing, you're not constantly concerned about what is it producing. You're enjoying it right now, right? That's part of the, the nature of play. When the work is done, it is forgotten. That is why it lasts forever. Isn't that amazing? So it's not about how can I capture this and maintain this for the future? It's let me do it for its own sake right now and not cling to it once it's done. Um, we'll read a little bit more from the Dao De Ching only because I think it's so beautiful. Um, putting a value on status will create conscientiousness. If you overvalue possessions, people begin to steal. By, by not displaying what is desirable, you will cause the people's hearts to remain undisturbed. All right. So when you prop up and continue to overvalue things like possessions and objects, that's when it's going to make people kind of make their minds and their hearts and everything selfish and you know always wanting more and seeking more. But what does the sage do? The sage governs by emptying minds and hearts, by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones, right? So a sage is a person who is not trying to dangle that carrot in front of everybody constantly. The sage is allowing people to feel at ease with right now. He's not driving them towards their ambitions. He's driving them more towards the now, towards what already is, towards doing less. And ironically, by doing less, you end up doing so much more. That's the irony and part of that leap of faith. It's kind of like, you know, the same thing in love. If you try to force yourself into love with another person, especially a significant other, it, it kind of feels like, you know, I can't force myself to love you. 
But once you just kind of lean back and allow the love to come, it comes of itself. It comes on its own. Practice not doing. When action is pure and selfless, everything settles into its own perfect place. I think that's so beautiful. You know, just settling down. Like we say, the best way to calm stormy waters is to just let them settle. Um, the Tao is empty, but inexhaustible, bottomless, the ancestor of it all. All right, so we say the Torah is like is water, right? They say the same thing about the Tao. It sinks to the lowest place. It goes to those who are humble, those who are not trying to do more. And the irony is, even when you're trying to do more, it's still flowing within you. Maybe you might not be able to see it, but it's always there. It's always there beneath the surface. It's always just flowing. And no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are during your day, you can take a moment of mindfulness and feel into that rhythm and the vibrations around you and whatever that means. You know, I, I'm not, you know, so in tune with it all the time. I, I, and that's kind of like the, the work of life is to retrain yourself to keep doing less, ironically. Retrain yourself to keep coming back to now in the midst of it all. And you'll, you'll see eventually that the Tao is the ancestor of it all. It's almost like that ensof. It's almost like that ensof or keter part of the sefirot that is, you know, up there and, and just the source of it all naturally. Somehow it just occurs of itself, as we're going to see soon in the Zod. Within it, the sharp edges become smooth. The twisted knots loosen. The sun is softened by a cloud. The dust settles into place. Right? It's all about these things just becoming easier. And uh, you notice the more you clench your teeth and, you know, grit your nails and, uh, you know, clench your fists in, in trying to accomplish something, what are you doing really? You're just wasting more energy. You know, like the, they have the famous story of the kid who's trying to pay attention and concentrate in class. And then what does he do to try to concentrate? He just like furrows his eyebrows a little bit more. That's just more muscular tension. That's not actually paying attention. You're just, you know, physically making yourself more tense. It's not going to do anything for anybody. So if you really would just allow the kid to relax and just, you know, be present with what is, then maybe he'll pay more attention. It is hidden, but always present. I do not know who gave birth to it. It seems to be the common ancestor of all, the father of things. It's interesting. Like, I don't know who gave birth to it. We're going to see that among the Sefirot, me, the, the question in Hebrew of who, is known as Bina. Bina, being the mother of it all, is who. That's another name for Bina, the mother of it all, is, is who. Like, it is who. It is, I don't know. That's what it is. And that's basically what he's echoing here. I just want to show you and give you this flavor of, wow, like you could open up the Dao De Ching and already start to hear so many echoes from our tradition and from our, you know, books and, and especially the Zohar. We'll read one more little section and then we'll go to one more thing before we get to the Zohar. Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the 10,000 things as straw dogs. The sage is not sentimental. He treats all his people as straw dogs. The sage is like heaven and earth. To him, none are especially dear, nor is there anyone he disfavors. He gives and gives without condition, offering his treasures to everyone, right? He's like a tree that's rooted by the separation of waters. Ronnie Bennett says brilliantly that whole uh, pedic of Tehillim 
is actually referring to Bereshit Perek Aleph, right? And the separation of waters refers to those four rivers in Gan Eden and taking from that tree of knowledge being, you know, and Ish is Adam. It's all connected within that first Perek of Tehillim. So a person who is on that level where he's living almost in Gan Eden and he's veering away from sin and he's on the path of goodness. What is the path of goodness? It's really in a way a path that is in line with nature and a path that is in line with what they would call here the Tao. Um, and he's able to give and give and give and be a vessel for giving without getting depleted. Um, and he's able to, to see everything for its temporariness. Between heaven and earth is a space like a bellows, empty and in inexhaustible. The more it is used, the more it produces. Hold on to the center. Man was made to sit quietly and find the truth within. So beautiful. It's almost like it was written today. You know, find, sit quietly and find the truth within. How often are we really able to do that? Constantly, almost. We're looking outside. We're looking outside ourselves for some kind of wisdom, for something that we feel like we're lacking. But, you know, 10 times out of 10, the mystic will tell you, whatever you're seeking is already found. And it's already seeking you. If you would only just quiet yourself, quiet your mind. Rabbi. Okay, perfect timing. So let's go into... Uh, the Zohar. So we left off last time. We did the, the beginning of the Hakdama. And now we're up to literally Bereshit. So, you know, welcome. Welcome to the very beginning of the way that the Zohar talks about creation. So beautifully, so Bereshit in the beginning, Rabil Azar opened. Lift your eyes on high and see who created these. This is from Yeshayahu, Perek uh, Mem. Lift your eyes on high. To which site? Where are you lifting your eyes towards to see what? The site toward which all eyes gaze. All right. So this is something to do with, and it's amazing. Like they begin Bereshit, the commentary with some random pasuk from Yeshayahu about lifting your eyes on high. Where? Towards that place where everyone's looking. Which is that? Hetah enaim. Opening of the eyes. You know where that appears? That's the place where Tamar seduced Yehuda in the Torah, right? Where she seduced him in order to fulfill the mitzvah of um, or to have children. Uh, and Petah literally means the opening of the eyes. There you will discover that the concealed ancient one susceptible to questioning created these, right? So if you lift up your eyes or you open your eyes, somehow it will become clear to you that it was this you know, prime being that is the source of everything, whatever that means. Who is that? Remember, we were just talking about it. Who, the question they ask here, who is that? You know what the answer is? Who? The answer is me. And we're going to see that me is referring to Bina. That the best way of talking about this mother sefirah of all of the other sefirot and then all of creation is also known as who? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like the Zohar is doing a whole Abin and Costello bit. That's fantastic. So, you know, in, in a way, it, it makes so much sense because it's like they're trying to tell you within the question is the answer. And, you know, like we have that famous uh, thought experiment. Like if you could have audience with God, you could ask God anything. 
you would you wouldn't really know what to ask at a certain point. You would be like, you know, why is? And then you would just maybe say like, why? Or you would say something like, who? And he'd be like, yes, you got it. Who? That's the answer in some weird sense. Like if you understand that the question of who is the answer, then you get it. And it's like, what do you mean? It's like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, the one called end of heaven above, right? Ketz HaShamayim, whose domain extends over everything. Since it can be questioned, yet remains concealed and unrevealed, it is called who, right? So it can be questioned, but it's still hidden. So that's why it's called me, who? Beyond, there is no question. So if you go even beyond the me, and we'll see exactly what all this means. So now let's read the commentary. So first of all, petah enayim. And by the way, we left off last time talking about the, for some reason we talked about the avot and how Yosef HaSadik brought this, energy of the Avot into the, the land, and they say, by what merit is all of this withstanding? And the answer is by the merit of the children, or like uh, Rabbi Yehuda says, the world endures only for the sake of the breath of the children in the house of study, right? So something to do, right? Hashem, you uh, established that, that um, strength and the continuation of the covenant or whatever that means, through the hope that is found within children. And amazingly, why is that so awesome? Because that's from the same pedic that we're about to quote from, which they're about to quote in the Zohar here, when I gaze upon the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you should even remember him? And uh, they, they talk about here, the two kerubim being like children. Fine. So now what is this petah enaim that we were saying? That you lift up your eyes and you see this thing that opens up your eyes. The phrase originates in, in Genesis, like we said, talking about uh, the whole story with Tamar and Yehuda. The Midrash in Bereshit discovers a deeper meaning. And they say, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi said, We have searched through the entire Bible and have not found a place called Petah Enaim. Right? So I guess he means like anywhere else in Tanakh, there's no geographical location called Petah Enaim. So clearly, and I think this might even be Peshat, that when, even in the Pshat, when it calls it Petah Enayim, this place where Yehuda and Tamar converged, it's like, what is this even talking about? And it's, it's clearly something deeper and more cryptic, like the Ma'asil Ibn Sapir, maybe, kind of energy, like the sapphire brickwork under God's feet, almost like that. This indicates that Tamar gazed at the opening toward which all, all eyes gaze and said, right, so it's saying, Tamar looked at this, Petah Enaim, or this, this place where all the eyes are looking, like we quoted above in the Zohar, and she said, May it be the divine will that I not leave this house empty. All right, so she's saying, Yehidatzon, that I come out of this with Baruch Abara ID. We just started uh, the Genesis part, the creation story in, in the Zohar. Um, oh, so great. Heebie that's right, heebie goods. <laughs> right now we're talking about a, a place called the opening of the eyes. It's a very cryptic statement in the Torah. And it's saying Tamar and Yehuda, she seduced her father-in-law in order to have children. And she said, may I not leave this house empty? In the Zohar, this opening is identified with Shekhinah, the gateway to the divine. So somehow this Petah Enaim in the Zohar is identified as Shekhinah. And somehow this Shekhinah that she was seeking or, you know, would be 
almost like a motherly spirit to her. I'm not exactly sure what it's talking about. What, but maybe we'll see later on in the Zohar in part three. Now we get to the interesting part. We were saying Erwin earlier that this idea of, you know, who is the source of all of this? Or who is that that you're looking at when you gaze upon the heavens and you look and you say, who created this whole world? The answer is me. The answer is who? Not me, Michael, but me, question in Hebrew. So that's why it's like an Abbot and Costello bit. Um, so Bina is really what it's referring to. Me, who is Bina? The Divine Mother is called who? A spiritual seeker may inquire about her, but such questions do not yield ordinary answers. The identity of the divine is discovered only in a realm beyond words. Right? So it's saying the question is not going to really lead you towards an answer with words, but a realm beyond words. And the questioning itself is the right answer. You should be asking this question, who? That is the fundamental question. So, you know, it's interesting because you talk about modern philosophy or epistemology and you start reading this stuff. You say, I feel like they're missing a step because you start off already with this content. You say, but who am I that's questioning this? Nobody ever starts with that. Everyone already starts with the content or with the object of what you're studying. But the real question, the realest question is, who am I the observer? And until you understand that subject-object dichotomy, until you understand me, who am I, and what is this bina deal going on here? What is this mother of everything? You're going to be lost in all philosophy because you, you miss the fundamental you know, ground of everything, which is, I know that there's subject-object, but what am I as the subject? And is there really a separation between me as a subject and all this stuff as the object? So it's the, that question is a very good question because it leads you towards this mystical way of thinking and saying, aha, now you understand a little bit because now you're seeing that this world of forms that you're already starting to analyze, you forgot to analyze who is the one analyzing. But now this way of questioning, this way of our forefathers who gazed upon the heavens and said, me, who created all of this? It's another way I think of saying, who am I? Therefore, right? If I don't know who created all this, I also don't know who I am. The mystical name who, me, talking about Bina, becomes a focus of meditation as question turns into quest. I think that's so beautiful in the commentary here by Pritzker. The question is supposed to become a personal quest for you mystically. When you ask, who is it? Um, okay, and then Shimon Lavi says, concerning everything that cannot be grasped, its question constitutes its answer. So that's what I was trying to say earlier. Within the question itself is the answer. And that's the nature of these very cryptic things. And we're, we see a whole bunch of cross-references here to the Zohar. We should be Zohar to read all of them one day. We can't get into all of it now, but just know that there's a lot more to it right now. Um, okay, now the, the last part of this paragraph uh, in this commentary. End of heaven above. So the Ketz HaShamayim. What is this talking about? So see Devarim Perek Dalet. Ki Yamim Ahad Rishonim Asher Yulefanecha Lemin Ayom Asher Bara Elohim Shamayim Something like that. V'Adam Adam HaShamayim Mikseh HaShamayim V'Ad Ketzeh HaShamayim So for us now of primal days which were before you from the day that God created humankind on earth and from the end of heaven to the other, right? So it's saying, it's almost like a poetic way of saying, ask from the beginning of everything. Um, so what does that mean? What is this end of heaven above? 
in Masechet Hagiga, also in, you know, right before the whole idea of uh, this verse is interpreted as imposing a limit on cosmological speculation, right? So it's saying, be careful about how much you question. So this is ironic. It's saying, you should ask me, but what should you not say? So you should, it says, you may inquire concerning from one end of heaven to the other, but you may not inquire concerning what is above, what is below, what came before, what will come after. And it says, Sima Sechet Hagiga Daf Bet Amud Aleph and Bereshit Rabba 110. So to me, this is very strange. So it's like, which is it? Do you want me to question me? Or do you, do you not want me to question me? Do you want me to say like, okay, I, I'm not allowed to ask, you know, uh, uh, who is before, what is above, what's below, who came before and who comes and what comes after? Which is it? So I think, you know, I don't, I don't, do you have any ideas, Rabbi? <laughs> Maybe there's different opinions. Oh, but you can ask about what is now. Mm-hmm. So, um, ah, from right now, but not. But you, you're not going to be able to understand if you go. <coughs> uh-huh. So before time makes no sense because there was no before time or after time. Just makes no sense. It's like the same thing as asking about a four-sided triangle. Logically, it makes no sense. I think they were also against apocalyptic writing. Mm-hmm. Don't ask about what comes after. You do what you need to do here. Do the right thing. Don't worry about the end of days. Exactly. Yeah, they're trying to steer us away from uh, being too out there. Unfortunately, this class might be a little bit. I don't know if they would approve of this stuff. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so these restrictions on cosmological speculation recall the Gnostic striving after the knowledge of who we were, what we have become, where we were, where we have been thrown, where we hasten, from what we are redeemed, what birth is, and what rebirth is. Right, so, and that's from Clement of Alexandria. So it seems like the agnostics were all about this. So maybe the hachamim were also doing a polemic against agnostics, like the rabbi was saying. Beautiful. Okay, so that is that commentary from what we were just talking about. Um, so that's called Ketzach Now, beyond, there is no question. So what does that mean, that there's no question about the beyond? Here he says, the realms beyond Binah, Right, because so far we we're just talking about me. We we're talking about Bina, the mother Sefira. The realms beyond that mother Sefira, namely Hochma, Keter, and Ensof, the ones right be- above it. So Hochma uh, and Bina got together as male and female to create the rest of the Sefirot. Above Hochma and Bina was Keter, which was this nameless, formless thing that somehow brought about the creation through Hochma and Bina. And even above Ketet is this Ensof, this infinity of God. So the realms beyond Binah, namely Chochmah, Ketet, and Ensof, that which preceded it, are so unknowable that no question concerning them can even be formulated. It's like you can't even ask a question about what you don't know. So like you ever see those, those, uh, those pie charts? It's like, these are all the things that I don't know. And it shows you like in a pie chart, okay, this is the section of things that I don't know. And these are all the things that I do know. And these are all the things that I don't even know that I don't know. So basically what it's saying here is like, you have to realize this is a whole huge percentage of things. You don't even know that you don't know. And part of of being humble and part of, I guess, you know, going through this process of, of learning and understanding is realizing, wow, I don't even know all the things I don't know. I don't even know what I can't even question because I can't even question it. And that's this 
everything included in Ensof, Keter, and Chokhmah. And we're going to see more about Chokhmah in a minute, but I thought that is just super interesting. Any any comments or questions about that? I have a question. I don't know how it relates, but your relations from what I'm trying to grasp from what you're throwing at me. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of stuff, I know. <laughs> right, no, but it's beautiful because it really gets your mind you know, on, on high speed. Absolutely. But is all this... Like and is all this like an ascension, like or could you picture like a Venn diagram where everything is sort of connected to? Do all these things lead to or not one leads to the other to the other till you get to the top of the mountain? Or exactly. like exactly in a way, see, yes. What do you see this laundry list as? What do you? Yeah. See? So the Sifirot, I think it's a great question. I th- I see it, you know, similar to the way Rabbi Sassoon talks about the Mishkan as being, or like Mickey, you were telling me the other day about. Uh, seeing the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan as like a blueprint for meditation. So, so ID, if I would tell you, you know, go meditate on God, you'd be like, all right, that's pretty tough to do all on my own. But if they say, you know what, I'm going to give you a special spiritual teaching. You know, I'll go on an aside now. I'll tell you, it's a, I'm reading this unbelievable book recommended to me by my rabbi in Israel called Tales of Power by Carlos Castaneda. And it takes place in Mexico. And uh, it's, you know, this, this uh, a student with basically his guru um, or his protecher, like somebody that's almost like protecting him, but he's really his guru teaching him spiritual teachings. And at some points in the book earlier on, they reference when he did mescaline as part of his training, and he does a whole bunch of different things as part of his training. And then throughout the book, he, he receives more and more teachings from his teacher within a traditional context. Until he really starts getting these unbelievable spiritual powers, he's able to conjure up another teacher called Don Genaro. So his name is Carlos, and he's, he's talking to Don Genaro, and he's seeing all these different things, and each one is like a new revelation to him. But you right. notice throughout the book, wow, this is amazing. You know why he's able to, to go on the spiritual quest? Because he has a teacher teaching him each thing within the context and the framework of a religious tradition. The sad part is today, a lot of people are spiritually seeking and they'll, you know, they'll do a psychedelic or whatever it is. And they'll do it not within the context of any kind of tradition. Nothing, absolutely nothing. They're doing within the context of like liberal 21st century America, which we know is almost like quicksand. And is, if anything, going to lead you towards a lot of mental illness and psychosis. Um, So, so bottom line we have people that are totally lost. So ID, what I would tell you is, you know, as a as a parallel, is that I see these sefirot as such a beautiful outbranching and outgrowth of what our tradition is. Our tradition gave us this meditative blueprint for how to relate towards God and how to relate towards these very esoteric ways that God created the world. And for some reason... God's creation of the world isn't only this event that happened back then. It's something that's coming out of every moment. So right now is a moment out of which you can understand the creation of the world. Because all moments between now and creation are continuous. So almost, it's almost like creation comes out of now. Always. Emerging from now. And you could, you could meditate into the sefirot and say, wow, there was this ensof. At the top, there's this infinity that I can't even talk about. It's ineffable. I don't even know how to even ask a question about it. And somehow it has this thing called Keter, which is just as ineffable. And and somehow that's a first emanation from God. And then Keter gave, you know, form to Chokhmah and Bina. And now we're on the dualistic plane. Now we got yin and yang. 
Now we got this thing that's like the there and the not there. So you talk about all the five senses. You talk about uh, hearing. Hearing is from sound waves, right? What's a sound wave? A wave is only noticeable because it's there and not there. If there was continuous noise, you wouldn't hear anything. A noise is, uh, which within what I just did, I, there's, there's the, the flowing of the there and not there, but it's, you, can't, you can't even hear what's not there because it's flowing. The frequency is so quick that you only notice the crests of the wave and not the troughs. Same thing with vision. You're constantly noticing what's there because the speed of light is so fast. But what about what's not there? It's, it's always within the context of that which is not there. So that's the yin and yang dichotomy. That's the chokhmah and the binah, the crest and the trough. And then from there, it gives birth to these other beautiful sefirot that each represent different parts, maybe of a person, parts of our forefathers, and we could relate to them in all these different ways. And in a way, when you meditate, and you start to correlate these to your body, to your ancestors, to your past, to your life, it could somehow lead you further and further back towards this inf- infinite being of God. Mikey, how does this relate to Chokhmah Mina? How does this relate to the Chokhmah Bina Da'ad Amida item? Very good question. Mickey just said, like, what, what did you find, Mickey? You looked it up. I was just wondering if Da'ad was another word for Ketid or if it was a, uh, I think it might be. But- I'm not so, sure. So according to this, they said that it's it's not um, that 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 is a subcategory uh, as the Ben, the child of the Ima is is mm. uh, Sorry, if the Abba is Kofman, the Ima is uh, Bina. Then Dot is the Ben. Uh-huh. So somehow Dot, according to Mickey, is like the the so child, the according to a quick search. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, definitely in the Chabad. Yeah, uh, movement. Right. Uh, is an acronym for exactly and the uh alter rabbi the original rabbi speaks a lot and he basically explains he he explains that at the crux of it is god that is everything basically mm. it's all a thought in a way wow yeah so i love i love all of that i think that i'm not sure where to put it in the diagram of sefirot i would love to be able to pin it down but somehow hokhman and bina definitely are Part of that, maybe dot is above. It's probably below, like like Mickey's saying. But yeah, we could look into it. It's a great question. I'll look into it. He made it sound like that was higher, but Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, it could very well be Ketet. I don't know why. I think it might be Ketet. I might have read that earlier. You think you think that that could be the like the alternative word? The one above it could be Hokman Bina are there, and then above it is dot is the is the Ketet. It's like the crown of all of it. No, right, so it makes sense that it's the crown, the because da is really the crown of the deal. So maybe yes, you know, exactly. So here, Mickey's saying that that oh, let's see, dot. Ah, okay. So here, I did. You see here, this one is saying that it's the child of them. Dot being right in the center there, it's the child ah. of Manbina. But uh, yeah, I don't. There's a direct connection, I guess, between that and Ketid. Yes. Yes. Makes oh, sorry. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely look more into it. That's our homework for for the next time. <laughs> um, but a very good question. Okay, so now let's continue. This end of heaven is called who, right? We said that me is talking about bina, bina being that third sefirah, the mother of all. So it's saying this end of heaven where we are now is called who. There is another below 
called what? What distinguishes the two? And right, we're going to see me who is talking about Ket. It's, it's talking about Bina. Another below called what? Ma. It's talking about the Shekhinah. What distinguishes the two? The first concealed one called who? Bina can be questioned. Once a human being questions and searches, contemplating and knowing rung after rung to the very last rung, once one reaches there, what? Then you ask the question of what? What do you know? What have you contemplated? For what have you searched? All is concealed as before. Right? So it's... Uh, so yeah, good. We're talking about dot, not dot. Dot being knowledge. Good question, though. So this idea of the, the panoply of all the sefirot in between Bina and uh, Shekhinah, that contains everything that we can kind of conceive of. So let's see what, what the commentary is going to say here um, about what. So Ma, Ma is another name for Shekhinah, um, right? And Shekhinah is the mother of all the physical realm that we're aware of. Um, and by the way, the realm of, of beyond, we said, was talking about everything above Bina. Now, Ma Shekhinah is the lowest of the ten sefirot, daughter of Bina. Um, Bina and Shekhinah comprise the two ends of heaven, above and below Tif'eret, who is called heaven. Right, so Tif'eret is kind of in the center. Tif'eret, also known as Malchut, also compared to Yaakov Avinu, is right in the center of all of this. And Bina and Shekhinah are the ends of the spectrum. Bina being the mother of it all. Shekhinah being the mother right before you get to the physical realm. Uh, and they contain the two ends of this heavenly spiritual realm. Um, and this word, and searches, mefashpesh. Uh, let's see if we got up to that yet. Yes. So once a human being questions and searches, contemplating and knowing wrong after wrong. So I.D., this is like your question. What's the point of all this? The point is to contemplate and know each sefirah, contemplate each one like a rung on a ladder. And each, you, each one, as you contemplate and meditate on it more and more, you could reach further and further towards each one. Uh, so what does it mean to question and search? The word in Hebrew is mefashfesh, but it could also be read here as mitpashet, which means to expand. Um, and the Bahir and the Azriel of Genona say, Thought expands and ascends to its source, right? So as your thought keeps expanding and expanding, uh, like to stretch out, it keeps expanding until it gets to the source, till keter, till ensof. When it reaches there, it is stopped and can ascend no further, right? So it's almost like once you get to the crown of the sefirot, it can't ascend anymore. You can't actually, you cannot get to the, to the ensof. You have to drop your identity as an ego to see Ensof, to see the me, to see the who, to see the who is it? It's no one. It's no one and someone at the same time. That's the, the craziness of this. And like we say, Yeshme'ayin, like we always say, something from nothing. God is that nothingness, if you really want to know. Uh, but it's it's something that is, you know, you can't put it into words, obviously. Um, good. So now let's see what else is saying. So it's saying you're you're going from one rung to the next. So what do you know? What have you contemplated? For what have you searched? All is concealed as before. So it's almost like you get to the each rung, each rung, each rung, 
And you're saying, all right, what have you even found? It's all concealed still. You still can't really know. Concerning this mystery, it is written, what can I take as a witness to you? What can I compare to you? All right, so this is from Megillat Echa. So it's saying, what can I even compare you to at this very highest level? When the Holy Temple was destroyed, a voice cried out, what can I, uh, can I take as a witness to you? What can I compare to you? Hey, how you doing? What can I compare as a witness to you? I take what as a witness to you? Every single day, all right? So what is that saying? I take what? We said what Ma is talking about? Shekhinah is talking about the divine presence that's always right here with us, right? So it's asking rhetorically, obviously, but it's a witness to you, Hashem, in a way, this Shekhinah. Every single day I have called witnesses against you since days of old, as it is written. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day from Devarim, from Deuteronomy. I compare you to what? And then it says precisely. It sounds almost, you know, like you, we can't understand what the heck is talking about. But in a sense, what are we saying here? We're saying I'm comparing B'nai Israel to the Shekhinah, I think. And, uh, well, and Shekhinah is also known as Ma, as what? I crowned you with holy crowns, gave you dominion over the world, as it is written in this the city that was called perfect crown of beauty, joy of all earth. All right, talking about Yerushalayim. I called you Jerusalem, built up a city bound together. Now what can I liken to you to console you? Just as you sit desolate, so it is above as it were. Just as, as now the holy people do not enter you in a holy array. So I swear to you that I myself will not enter above until your inhabitants enter you below. So this is like a divine promise that we're going to see in a minute in the commentary. But it's like a divine promise that we have a, a reflection here between the heavenly realm of Yerushalayim and the earthly realm of, Jer of Jerusalem. And God is saying, I'm not going to inha inhabit the heavenly realm until the earthly realm is inhabited again. Uh, it's like a divine promise. This is your consolation. I compare this wrong to you completely. But now that you are here, your ruin is vast as the ocean. Yet if you say you cannot endure or be healed, then who will heal you? Really? That concealed high rung in which all exists will heal you and raise you up. Very beautiful. So let's see what all this means right now. So we're up to up until number 37. Uh, so let's see, starting from 32. Okay, so this I call heaven and earth, right? Earth symbolizes the Shekhinah. So it's not B'nai Israel, I made a mistake. It's also earth itself. The entire earth is being compared to God's presence. Because we say very famously in Isaiah, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Right? It fills up all of God's, uh, sorry, the, the whole earth is full of God's glory. Like the waters fill the oceans. So too is the earth full of God's Shekhinah. I compare you to what? Precisely, it's saying. Ah, I compare you to what? Ah, exactly. I compare you to what? What's the what? It's Shekhinah. Israel, ah, so I was right. Israel represents Shekhinah perfectly. So we represent this lowest level of the divine emanation um, in a way. And it's saying that's how you should be compared, Israel. What can I liken? Again, Israel and Shekhinah, what are compared? 
Um, I myself will not enter. The blessed Holy One promises not to enter the heavenly Jerusalem, Shekhinah, until the earthly Jerusalem is restored. Uh, there is a Jerusalem above, aligned with Jerusalem below. Out of his love for the one below, he fashioned another above. He has sworn that his presence will not enter the heavenly Jerusalem until the earthly Jerusalem is rebuilt. So that's a beautiful way of understanding this. It's saying, okay, this whole time we've been talking about all the upper sefirot and everything in heaven. And now it's saying, what about this earthly realm? Does this earthly realm even matter? And it's saying, not only does it matter, but it's saying there's something missing in this divine realm. The edge of heaven, which we said one edge was the me, was, was binah. This other edge is shekhinah. The, that edge of heaven, Shekhinah, is not complete until we fulfill all the work on this earth, in this Jerusalem. Until this Jerusalem is built up, that Jerusalem up there is not going to be built up. So you know what? You know, Growing up, I used to be so skeptical towards this way of thinking. And da, da, da. But you start to realize there's no absolute reality. There's no absolute way of relating to reality. Science is great for, its, for what it is. But imagine you actually internalize this truth. Imagine you go about your day realizing like, wow, my job on this earth is to unite the Jerusalem that is, this physical Jerusalem, with the Jerusalem that ought to be, that highest spiritual level of Jerusalem. And once we could marry the two, we get this beautiful experience. And that's my mission on this earth. Combine that with all the Taoist stuff we spoke about and being present during this mission, balancing and juggling those two things at the same time. What a beautiful experience of life. That's the way I start understanding this stuff. Isn't it amazing, ID? You start to appreciate the gifts that no. our gave us. Yeah. So so when you say the Tao, so give me first of all the pronunciation of the how do you say the Tao? How do is it? It yes, yeah, so it's spelled T-A-O or D-A-O. Oh, so it I is so because you always say the Tao and it's, yeah, it says Tao. No, but it's pronounced the Tao. Yes, it's pronounced Tao by most people. Okay, so it's a it's a thing that you got me into, and now I'm, <laughs> no, I said I'm Wayne Dyer. It's, it's another from Dyer blew me away. By the way, <laughs> we were just reading it, but I was just reading his thing in the beginning of the class because the truth, anything with him is like he's my guy from forty years ago. But until today, I have everything from him. But <laughs> in it, like what I hopped out of that whole thing, which I was like transcending, I was in another planet. Me too, but I was in Costa Rica I, listening to it. I, yeah. I loved you for sending me. <laughs> One thing there, it said, we're a guest here. That flipped me out. That's like saying, it's like someone welcomes you into your home. Like how appreciative should you be? How How congenial should you be? How friendly should you be? How supportive should you be? How do you want to do something? Someone put yeah. it at home. How, how, how do you act? So you were a guest. 100%. When Daya said that with the stream and the music, yeah. I was like, whoa, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> I was on that same plane with you. I'm telling you, you don't understand. There's an amazing story at Rabbi Besser used to tell this story. I think it was about. Uh, not the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I forgot which which Hasidic rabbi. The Hafez Chaim. That's the one. You know exactly. The Hafez Chaim. The Hafez Chaim. Right. So there's an amazing story. A guest comes over him. He goes into his house. 
He's, oh yeah, I think I heard the line. I remember this one. He sees there's there's no furniture. There's right, right. Furniture. That's the famous line. I love it. And he tells him he's like, "What's going on here?" He's like, "Chavetz Chaim, why don't you have any furniture, any place to right. sit in your own house?" Right. And, and, uh, and he tells he tells the guy he said so he tells him what do you mean so he says, he says so he goes no I don't have anything I don't want to take the you think because the, the the guest says oh I, I don't live here I'm just passing through right so the Chavetz Chaim says same here I'm, I don't, I'm just passing through. <laughs> that's the classic line which is really it's like amazing when people understand that like yeah. I said with the doubt what you're a guest. We're a guest. Exactly. Imagine how you act when you're a guest somewhere. You, know? you want to hear amazing? In the Torah itself, it says this. It's black on white in Sefer Vayikra. I think it's Behar uh, Behukotai somewhere. Hashem is talking about the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, and it's saying that every seven years, the land returns to its original owners, even if it was sold. And what does it say? Ki gerim toshavim atem imadi. Because you are strangers and sojourners with me. Wow. And there's nothing more beautiful than that because you start to realize in, in your humility, you say, isn't that unbelievable? I'm just a guest here. Let me stop trying to make it like I own the place. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and when you start treating the earth that way and start treating your, your life that way, like you really are here on borrowed time, it adds a poignancy and a beauty to the way that we live our daily lives. And, and surely it makes us treat each other better and uh, and to appreciate what we have in the now, you know? Baruch Hashem. Um, beautiful. Wow. You, you bring out my best ID. Thank you. I <laughs> know. You, you feel it to me. I just talk it. I love it. It's like, I feel like I'm, I'm pitching you these nice meatballs and you're hitting home runs. <laughs> yeah, I love to hit home runs. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so this wrong, of course, is talking about the Shekhinah. Um, and here, but now that you are here, your ruin is vast. Now that Israel has fallen to the low state of exile, her ruin is vast as the ocean, another name for Shekhinah, who shares Israel's exile, right? So it says, right? That word Shekhin is like the Shekhinah. It's dwelling with us in the midst of our impurity. And it, it, the, the, the Hachamim say, in a way, the Shekhinah of God feels the pain that we feel when we're in exile. And it feels the pain that we feel when, when we're down and out, you know, as a nation, especially when we're uh, being destroyed by the Romans or whatnot. All right, so that's that part. Uh, so let's continue here. Um, who is the end of heaven above? Right, so it's, that's a statement. That's not a question. Who is end of heaven above? Right, so the me, right, that the Bina, the heavenly mother, is the end of heaven above. What is end of heaven below, right? It's not a question. It's what is heaven end of heaven below? So Bina is the highest rung above, and Shekhinah, the what, the ma, is the highest level below, is the, is the end of heaven below. So like we said, heaven is contained between Bina and Shekhinah. Jacob inherited this, right? So Yaakov inherited this, running from end to end. Which is right, a pasuk for, talking about the Mish, something in the Mishkan, one of the accoutrements. We'll see which one. From first end, who? The me. To last end, ma. For he stands in the middle. So Yaakov is tiferet, is malchut. Because he stands in between the bina and the shekhinah. And he holds all of it. 
and he is kind of holding all of heaven within himself. That's who Yaakov Yisrael is. So, who created these? Bina, me, created all of these. So let's see what the commentary says on this quick one. Um, so it's saying here, running from end to end, a description of uh, the central wooden beam of the tabernacle in the desert. Right, so the central beam of the of the Shekhinah of sorry, I see a Freudian slip. The central beam of the Mishkan, and I don't think it's a mistake that I said earlier. A way of thinking about these Sefirot is the same way as the Mishkan is like a blueprint of meditation. It's literally using very cryptically the pasuk talking about the physical structure of the Mishkan to talk about the physical foundation of these Sefirot. So just like the Mishkan is held by this wooden beam in the center, it's comparing that wooden beam in the center to the center Sefirah, which is Tiferet Malchut Yaakov. The Zohar applies this description to Tiferet, the central Sefirah, symbolized by Yaakov, who spans the Sefirot from Bina to Shekhinah. Amazing. So to me, this is a way of the Zohar hinting to us as the perceptive, hopefully, reader, saying, Look, look what we just discovered. The same way you, you should understand that the, that the Mishkan is a blueprint for meditation and that we always talk about there's three concentric circles of holiness within the, of the Mishkan, each one demarcated by the Kirubim, which we just talked about last class, right? Each one demarcated by these cherubs, right? They're on the outermost covering of the, of the, of the Mishkan called the Yeriot. They're on the parochet between the, the holy and the holy of holies. And they're on the, the, the kaporet on top of the ark of the covenant as those cherubs as well. And where else, of course, do we see the cherubs in Bereshit guarding the way to Etzahayim, to the Torah, to this infinity. Uh, so to me, the blueprint for meditation that you could use with the Mishkan is also the blueprint for meditation that we can use with the Sefirot. And this wooden beam that's this wooden beam that's literally spanning the panoply of the Mishkan is also the center of the entire Sefirot. Uh, and I think it's so beautiful that it's Yaakov. Because who is Yaakov Avinu? He's the one that is like, he suffered so much. He's the one that really out of him came Israel. And to say that he is the one that is holding up all of heaven is unbelievable to me because it's a person who suffered so much. And, and you just, you just, yeah. made, you just brought some things. So um, I'm thinking of how he's the connection. So actually, Malchut is connected to the last one, yes. So it's not the better, it's a connection. So it's Ketid. Oh, Malchut, I think, is it Malchut? Is it, it, Malchut is Yesod? Yeah. I, I'm almost really. But there's a, there's oh. a very specific connection between them like you were saying because Yaakov, Yaakov was in Malchut Yosef was supposed to be Malchut which is Yosef you sure Malchut is not another name for Tiferet because I looked that up last time pretty sure it's another name for Yosef but you can because Yesod I remember is Yosef is Sadiq Sadiq is another name for Yesod that's what I remember okay. we'll, we'll look it up again but I'm, yeah, I'm almost sure yeah um, but so what I was thinking was how he's the the, the that he's the center between Ketet and uh, the Shekhinah, which is mm -hmm. and um, 
So what I was thinking was when he had the dream of Malachim. Or the ah, it's like wrongs. Because you were talking about wrongs, he's, yeah. He's the, so the edit is an emergence of Chayasid, which represents Abraham, and Gebura, mm. which represents Yitzhak. Wow. And so he's like, they didn't have it on their own. They each discovered Iowa. an element. And they, he brought it all together. Wow. And in a way connected, or in a way found the ladder. You know what's connected. amazing about what you're saying is that you're 100% right. First of all, Abraham had his dreams and his revelations. Yitzhak had his dreams and his revelations. Yaakov, like you're saying, is the one who had what? There's a whole bunch of classes that you could read and, and articles and stuff that it's all about this connection between, like you said, exactly heaven and earth. He's not like the Migdal uh, Bavel, which also it says, He's not all about the Shamaim. He's Mutsav Arza. And then, what, amazingly, what do we say last class about Yosef Asadik? He's the one who took the Avot and planted them in the land. Yosef has two dreams, and his two dreams are a bifurcation of the one dream of Yaakov. I read a great article about this, mm. and there's language to support that. What's his first dream? Is about the heavenly realm, right? The 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 stars and the that's the Rosham Magia Hashamayma, and what's the Mutzav Arza? It's all about the agriculture and the earth and all that, and it's y- 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 sorry Yosef is supposed to be the one to bring about the practical, uh, you know, uh, uh, materialization and concretization of Yaakov's dreams that he had. And that's so beautiful. And, and I think exactly like you're saying, it's, it's so beautiful to see it on, on these different realms, you know, of reality and the practical realm of the Avot and what they did and the spiritual realm of what does it represent. Fantastic, really. Blowing my mind. I'm learning along with you guys, so it's so much fun for me. Really, I'm so thoroughly enjoying this. Um, so let's see. Okay, so that's that 38. Let's see next. I probably only have a couple more minutes, but we'll see what we can do with the time we have left. Um, okay. So what, for he stands in the middle, so who created these? Rabbi Shimon said, Al-Azhar, my son, cease your words, so that the concealed mystery on high, unknown to any human, may be revealed. Rabbi Al-Azhar was silent. The Bishim On wept and paused for a moment. So I want to just pause here for a second. First of all, that's so beautiful. So I read that and I say, wow, the Bishim On, I think the Bishim On Bari Ahai, um, who they say is the father of the Zohar, right? He's saying to Rabbi Al-Azhar, uh, c- cease your words, stop speaking, because this mysterious thing, which is ineffable, right? In order for it to be revealed, you have to cease your words. And we'll see that there's a double entendre in what he's saying, based on even the language in the, of the Zohar. We'll see that in the commentary. And then once the Bil Azad is silent, he starts crying. And that, I think, has a double layer to it. So it's like, on the one hand, he could be crying out of happiness, like, wow, you know, being quiet is so beautiful. And it allows us to absorb that which can only be understood in the, in the sound of silence. But at the same time, maybe he's crying because we miss out when we don't speak. Maybe this is my own midrash, but I think I'm trying to reflect what the Dao De Ching says, which is, 
he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. <laughs> right? So you have that. But then you have the whole Dao De Ching. Didn't he say the whole Dao De Ching? Why write the whole thing if you're saying that saying something means you don't know? The point is, I just can't help myself. Uh, you know, I know that my words don't capture it, <laughs> but still I enjoy it. Still I'm a human. Still this is my way of relating to the world. And davar is davar speaking, and a word is an object, and that's the way that I understand that's fun for me. So I think on the one hand, maybe he's crying because right. you're not when yeah. you're not. Right, but in the spar in the sparring process, when you when you said comically that the one who know the one who says it doesn't know, and the one who knows doesn't say that after the guy says it that doesn't know, does the does the other one open up and say you're off base? <laughs> well, if he says that, then he's off base, you know? <laughs> That's the whole thing. It, there's so many funny little interactions like that. I think it's not even a, a sparring thing, but sometimes they do have like those Zen koans where the guys are sparring and you start to yeah, know. Right. I, I think because the, the sparring process would help both people. Yeah. There's, posit there's a positive outcome to the conversation. For sure. They're going to go into it not on the same page, but they're going to come both come out with solutions. I think for sure. And that's a very Jewish thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the whole Gemara. All right. So let's see what, what this means. Rabbi Shimon said, my son, cease your words. All right. So he says in Hebrew, Pesok Milecha, which means, uh, or Pesok Milech, which could, the phrase could also be translated, utter your words. Like, so like a Pesuk. Right. Speak your words on the one hand. Either it means speak your words or it means stop your words. Right. It's right. a double entendre. It's like, you know, those words in direct hits for the SAT. There's words that mean this, like the word censor could mm -hmm. either mean to you know approve of something or sorry, it's to sanction. To sanction to, it could mean to approve of something or it can mean to, to say I disapprove of that thing. To temper. Right. Right. A person's temper is like it's uh, getting worse and worse. Or but to temper something is to calm it down. There's certain words that have a double, literally opposite meanings. Very funny like that. Laila tov tegur. So pesok so, melecha is the same. Melech is the same thing. So it could either mean stop speaking or keep speaking. So recite right. for me your verse. Uh, cease fits the context of our passage, but the ambiguity may be intentional, says the commentary, in which case a better rendering would be complete your words or cut your words. Right. right? So, and because complete or cut could have a double entendre too. If you say complete your words, it means, okay, say more, or it can mean stop or cut your words. It means, all right, say a little bit more and then cut it and, or just cut right. it out right now. But this, is this, is this in a person's, is this, um, is, in, is this in a person's self or this is in a sparring scenario? I think this is literally a conversation between two rabbis. Right. And one rabbi is almost like teaching his student. He's right. saying, stop speaking so that the divine energy can come of itself. Right. right. But Mikey, isn't the sparring like I'm always enamored by Shammai and Hillel that they're always uh, blowout, but they were best. I mean, yes. this, is this any kind of connection to that model? I think for sure, I think you're even hitting on a, a, a very deep point, which is, in a sense, not only is it sparring and it's they're both, you know, inter, inter, uh, internecessary, almost they're interbeing. They need each other in order to be. That's for sure. But they on the other hand, we're, we're, 
to get to the the solution or answer. Exactly. But even further than that, I think what you're saying is so beautiful because it reminded me, it's also a reflection of an internal dialogue that we have sometimes. The internal dialogue that we're having is almost like different parts of ourselves sparring with ourselves until we come to a resolution to be quiet and just listen to God, right? So you could be playing around with an idea here and there, here and there, Bet Shammai, Bet Tilel, to be Akiva, to be Ishmael, Moshe, and Korach, whoever the dichotomy is, until you just settle for silence and then somehow the answer comes to you. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Uh, but great point. Let's see, you're 40. I just want to say, yeah, so, please. Uh, Speech is like distinguishing those from the animals. Yes. They don't really speak. You're going to parrot, parrot. Yes. And there was um, a short video from Rabbi Yoel Gold, who was an Israeli who went to Alaska. And they said, and he went fishing by himself. And they said, if a grizzly bear comes upon you, what should you do? You should speak, stand up and say, Bear, I am standing here, I am fishing. And lo and behold, a bear did come upon him. Wow. And he spoke to the bear, and the bear went away. So the Israeli asked the, you know, the Alaskan book guys, why does that work? Do they understand English? He said, No, when you speak, you show you're a man, you're not an animal. Uh, he would run, he would chase you. That's beautiful. Amazing. Amazing. Very powerful. You know, it's funny because Onkelus says his translation of um, is when when Hashem, you know, uh, breathes the uh, breath of of God into man and in creation, he he translates it as Ruach Memalela. Ruach Memalela literally means the spirit of speech or the ability to speak. So it's the capability of speech that distinguishes us from, you know, inanimate objects or, or animals or anything else. That's what makes us human. Exactly like you said. Beautiful. Um, so that's the funny thing about speech is that it's, it's so powerful and it literally creates reality. But at the same time, it, we, we can't get too carried away with it. That's kind of the, the, the point of this. All right. So uh, Rabbi Shimon wept and paused for a moment. Then he said, Al-Azad, what is these? If you answer stars and constellations, they are always visible there and were created by what? As is said by the word of Yod Kevavke, the heavens were made. As for things concealed, such would not be referred to as these, for that word indicates something revealed. This mystery was only revealed one day when I was at the seashore. Eliyahu Hanavi came and asked me, Rabbi, do you know the meaning of who created these? I answered, these are the heavens and their array, the work of the blessed Holy One. Human beings should contemplate them and bless him as it is written. When I behold your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. So we'll, we'll go back to this next class, but I just wanted to give you a little cliffhanger and say, wow, isn't this amazing? We were talking earlier about another pasuk from Perik Haytav Tehilim, that the, the hope comes from the, the mouths of babes and sucklings, you know, and that's where we have our hope for the future of the covenant, even though evil prevails right now. And somehow the ability to gaze up at, at heaven, and that's the way we're beginning Bereshit here, is the ability to look up at heaven and say, who created all of this? That is the answer. And now we're going to get a little bit into the crux of this most beautiful, I think, uh, Mizmor and Tehilim, 
Perekhet, chapter 8. If you want, you can read it on your own. It's a very short chapter of Psalms. Psalms chapter 8, so beautiful. Um, and, you know, it's it's really, according to Ronnie Ben, a, a, a commentary on Avraham Avinu's experience when he was told by God, go out and, and look at, see if you could count the stars. Um, so we'll see Kabbalistically how the Zohar explains this with the use of the Sefirot. Next class. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Any, any questions or comments, please feel free. Great, great class, Mikey. Fantastic. What an, what an enjoyable experience to learn it with you guys. Thank you so much. It was great. Have a great Bye. week. It was dynamite tonight. I do, you're the man. You are, you're the man. Have a great week. Say hello, hello everybody in the class. It was Thank great. you so much, guys. You're the best. Okay. Take care. I'll see you, Mikey. Bye-bye.